Welcome back to the Atlanta Podcast. I am your host, Mappy Davis, and I have a great show in store for you today. Uh, One of my reasons for doing the Atlanta Podcast was to talk to people face-to-face. It's the best way to do an interview. However, once in a great while, uh, during COVID, obviously, and when the situation warrants it, I do do an episode over Zoom, and that's the episode you're going to get today because my guest, Nas, travels the world And this was the best way and the soonest way to bring it to you. And so we caught up over Zoom. Uh, So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to briefly read to you, which again, something I rarely do, uh, the description of the show that she put out called The Cost Cost of Happiness by Tony Shea. He is the billionaire founder of Zappos and uh, attempted to create this town, this community called the Downtown Project. And it says, after running quote unquote, the world's happiest company for two decades. Shea created his experimental community, experimental, experimental community, the downtown project dedicated to pursuing happiness. But what did Tony's life and death reveal about Silicon Valley's obsession with reimagining how society functions? And my guest today, Nas, did a great job. She went there many times. She talked to a lot of people involved. And this is not a whodunit. This is not a let's figure it out how uh, Tony died. Uh, but it's more of the macro, more of the thousand foot view of, uh, of tech and happiness and wealth and this particular fascinating man and the town of Las Vegas. And I think uh, you don't have to have listened to the show to enjoy this interview, but I'm hoping that after this interview, you will go back and listen to it. It is a mere nine episodes. I think it's nine episodes. No, seven. There's seven and then a bonus. Yeah, eight quick episodes that are a half an hour to 47 minutes a piece, it looks like. I ran straight through it, and uh, I'm fortunate because my friend, Jay Hoke, produces podcasts for a living, and this is the one that he produced for Imperative. And I've had Jay on the show three times now. I'll have him back again because he's got an even newer, cooler venture that he's doing, uh, producing more content for the world. Uh, but let's get into this episode uh, with Nastaran Nas, as we call her, uh, and enjoy. Away we go. I have this weird, long history with this man and this company that I wanna, I wanna talk about, um, and why I was so excited. I, I didn't even, I didn't even know what happened until uh, Jay told me about the podcast. I was like, okay, like I don't know if it, like what the news cycle was like. Because it, it was big news, and I'm just surprised. But, you know, sometimes that just happens. You go, oh, you didn't hear so-and-so died? It was a month ago or a year ago, right? I don't think I knew George Michael died for several years. Oh, wow. So, but, but and I want to tell you my long history and why I'm so fascinated with this. But I want to start with what had you drawn to this story? When did you know this was a story you wanted to make? Yeah, so I, I've been aware of both Tony Shea, but also the whole kind of downtown project. Uh, investment and you know development for a really long time. So I um, just going back. I studied economics. I've always been interested in uh, economics, business, but also how they relate to trying to live a better life, um, which sounds maybe quite lofty. But you know, I, th- I think there is a big thing with like it's not just about kind of you earn more money and live well, but like the, the, there's. I feel like business can have like a real sort of existential aspect to it as well in terms of like you want to create something and put something into the world and make something new and see how people react to it. Like there's a real creativity to it as well, which I find very interesting. So that is a little bit of background. Um, 
to say that um, I have been a business reporter for quite a while. So that's how I was aware of Tony and of the Downtown Project. Um, so that was kind of on my radar for quite a long time. Also, 2010s, um, especially early 2010s, um, I think it was like a period of real optimism in terms of looking at um, what entrepreneurship and business and especially tech can do for the world. Um, and I talked about this a little bit in the first episode of Cost of Happiness, how, you know, I went off and studied economics because I wanted to like make the world a better place, um, which I still totally believe is a, pos a possible thing. And I do actually still believe in that. Um, and, um, you know, the 2010s was all about like using business to do good and to like change the world. That's the kind of big phrase. So, um, of course, someone like Tony was very much on the radar with his uh, book, Delivering Happiness, and then the Delivering Happiness Institute, and then the whole kind of uh, ethos around Zappos and around the downtown project. Um, so basically, yeah, I've, I've known about this story for a really long time. Then interestingly, it was March 2020. I was in Las Vegas for one day, and I was there because I was reporting on a podcast I did called The Orgasm Cult, which was investigating One Taste, this uh, wellness company. Um, and I was actually there because I was meant to meet a guest in San Francisco. A guest who lived in Vegas was going to come to San Francisco and we were going to record. But then, um, you know, there were all these shutdowns happening. It, it was that period where like every day the world was like closing down rapidly. And because I wanted to seize the day, I was like, look, don't worry, I'm going to come to Vegas tomorrow. So it's a very last minute, unplanned thing. I went to Vegas to record with this guest. And you can hear it on the podcast. We go around a little bit. And we happened to um, go around the downtown area. And I'd kind of forgotten about the downtown project and everything until I was with this guest. And he said, oh, yeah, this is like, you know, Tony Shea's part of town. And I was like, oh, hang on. So that was kind of cool. Like I randomly ended up in Tony Shea's part of town. And then um, when I got back to London, I was actually kind of, um, I actually made a few inquiries. I did contact the downtown project because um, I was like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what happened. Because, uh, you know, things have been quiet on that front. And I assumed maybe it's because by then we were in 2020 and we were in a very different, not, not just because of COVID, but we were, I think, culturally in a very different place in terms of how we look at a lot of startups and the tech scene and all that sort of optimism and stuff. So I thought maybe it was to do with that, that I haven't really heard much about Tony Shea and the whole downtown project. So I started making some inquiries in the summer and I actually talked to an editor about it. I was like, it'd be really interesting to revisit this because it was like, um, it's not just about Tony, but about that whole cultural moment that happened um, about kind of using business to not just do good, but to also like live well, you know, the whole thing of like, you know, you can find your purpose through work and your tribe and stuff. Um, and actually I was in the middle of pitching it when I remember, I, I clearly actually remember the morning I woke up and on Twitter trending, it said Tony Shea and my heart sank. I was like, oh you knew shit. What it, you knew what it meant. Yeah. And when I saw the news back right then, it was just like he died in a house fire. And my first thought was, I, my first thought was, I wonder if this is a suicide or some sort of self-harm gone wrong, right. um, which interestingly, a lot of people have said that to me the past kind of year and a half when I've been interviewing people, that that was their thought when they saw the news as well. Um, so, yeah. And then the story took on a whole new urgency because of because of that. Yeah. And there's a lot that I want to talk about in terms of 
industry and purpose and America and all, and all this stuff. But I have to tell you this, it, it's going to be long, but it'll be worth I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear your Zappos story, your Zappos, Tony Shea downtown project story. I'm really, really intrigued. So, I had a staffing company. It was my first business that I that I started, right? Um, I've always been an entrepreneur, but I didn't know that's what I was. I, I never had a straight job, right? I always just did different things. And I didn't start my first business till I was like 32. But I was in that mode of reading all the books, you know, good to great and all the success books. And I, I went to every like seminar that I could and was doing that. And so I was on the road and I was watching... I want to say it was I want to say it was Charlie Rose, but it might have been like Charlie Rose was interviewing this guy Tony Shea and he was very even keeled and talking about success and not in this rah rah Tony Robbins way and that just sort of fascinated me. I was like, well who is this guy, right? Cuz he was just like talking in this normal voice and how you get people excited and how you get people excited about work. So I ordered the CDs, okay? So when we listened to CDs, I ordered the CDs and I was fascinated by this guy and this story, right? And I thought, and I hadn't heard of Zappos at the time. So this is, I want to say 2010 or 11. When did Amazon acquire them? Because I feel like that that happened shortly afterwards. It was around then. You're you're talking about delivering happiness. You were listening to the CDs of the book. Correct. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. I I think that was that came out 2011. So I thought well, I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to order some shoes, right? And I ordered the shoes, and they said, "Cool, we're going to give you." And this whole concept of free shipping both ways, which nobody was doing at the time, and now everybody is now. And they actually said, "You know what? I'm going to give you expedited free shipping. They'll be here tomorrow." And I said, "Can I ask you?" About working there? And the guy goes, sure. I said, how would you rate this on a scale of 1 to 10? And he said, well, I guess it would be 10 if I was not working at, like, getting paid to do nothing. So it's a 9. And I said, why is that? And he told me all the reasons he liked working there and how he'd never worked at a place like this. And then I call back the next day just for the fun of it because I thought maybe that was a fluke. And I, I said, hey, I ordered shoes yesterday. I just want to ask you a question. Do you – how would you rate working here on a 1 to 10? And the guy goes, 11? And again, and he told me, and I was like, like, this is not bullshit. Like these people, like you could tell it wasn't bullshit. It was real. These people felt something. And so then I kind of became fascinated, right? And uh, I was, uh, I started buying people that book. Uh, I was in Vegas. So I did the tour, right? You know, the tour that you do for a day. And I actually met, was it that day that I met Tony real briefly? No, no, I think I... The people who had, who had like led the tour or or introduced us, I was doing some some um, leadership stuff, and I said, "Could we teach you something? Could we do one of your leadership classes instead of paying for it? We sort of swap, and like we teach you." And then they were like, "Sure." So me and this guy that I know, we prepared something, and we we taught this little class, and it was like it was it was it was only it was on a Friday, and it turns out most people took work off on Friday. So it wasn't a lot of their guys. <laughs> But anyway, I met Tony really briefly. We were walking out, I think, and they said, do you want to introduce Tony? And he was he and he was talking to Guy Libertaire. You know who he is? Okay, so for the listeners, that's the guy that started um, uh, Cirque du Soleil. And so I assumed that's what it was about. I had heard they were doing some downtown Vegas stuff. And um, I uh, – so I just met him briefly. We didn't say anything. But I've just – I felt this really strong connection, like this – like two or three year period that I was highly invested in this guy and this company. And um, like I said, I would always recommend the book to people and I sent it to people. 
And so I, I hear the news from, from you all, like, and I start Googling. And so I had no idea he was, he'd become a like drug addict. I had no idea about any of that. Um, and I have mental health issues. I'm sober a long time. I've met a lot of people with a lot of issues. And to me, it's pretty basic. It's like, that's what, that's what unmedicated people like do when they self-medicate or unmedicated. That's what happens because it's very real. Whatever you're thinking and feeling about the world, whether it's depression or mania, like in, in your, it's very real to you. So that's why these choices are made. And it was just, I feel like after listening to the show, the problem when it happens to really successful people is that nobody gets in for all the reasons well, you talked about. All the yes well, people they don't, don't want yeah. it to change. Or, or they don't allow, I mean, to be fair, like there were people who tried to tell Tony and he didn't want to hear it, you know? Right. From what, from what I've heard from people, that seems to also. Right, because it's, like, it's really hard to think things aren't going okay when you're living in your own castle, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you bring in the bad actors who are then taking advantage of it, right? Um, So where the downtown project went wrong, though, the the part that's a lot of these sort of like companies that take on cultish uh, tactics or uh, tendencies come on, I don't think Tony – I don't think Tony was that way. I don't think he was malicious. What do you think? Um, I don't think so either. Um, now, like I never met Tony. Actually, the thing I forgot to say earlier on when I was talking about knowing about Tony and what he was up to, I had also interviewed Jen Lim, who she ran Delivering Happiness uh, with Tony. So I'd interviewed her in 2013 um, to do with sort of like companies who were interested in worker happiness. So that's just like another little bit of info about kind of just being across all this. Um, from from what I've heard of people, I don't think Tony was malicious either. Um, I wonder how much also this is also the general culture that we see in the sort of tech scene of like, there's, you know, there's, and, you know, I've seen this culture both through reporting, both through my personal experiences and proximity with kind of, you know, various companies and groups and, you know, things in that ecosystem. So the upsides are like, you know, there's this can-do attitude, this culture of optimism and, you know, kind of utopia as well. That sounds like an extreme word, but, you know, wanting to kind of like imagine a really good future and how, you know, we can all be positive and stuff. The downside of most of these kinds of circles is that you're not really allowed to speak up. Any speaking up is seen as negativity. It's seen as kind of bursting the really perfect bubble. And funnily enough, like dynamics like the downtown project, I have seen these in less extreme forms like again and again and again, where like, it's it's just the overall culture where, you know, everything has to be positive. You can't speak up about things because that's killing the vibe. It's being negative, even though like, you know, there might be really legitimate criticisms or, you know, um, any, any sort of criticism is seen as like being an attack or like, you know, not being in the spirit of like making things better rather than, hey, no, we need to look at things going wrong or we need to look at problems and difficulties and actually be realistic about them. So kind of like, um, I I think that's why I found that story really interesting because it's like, I think anyone who's been involved in a company or like uh, kind of in that ecosystem will find so many aspects of that story relatable, even if they weren't involved in the downtown project. So I think it's less Tony necessarily, but the kind of culture. Right, so that's that's sort of the 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 things that I was thinking about is mm-hmm. they were basically saying, oh, sure, he's just like every other rich person that tried to build 
you know, the fact the town for the factory workers where you keep all their money because you own the grocery store too. And I'm just like, I just don't think that was Tony. Yeah. But at the same time, I do wonder if, um, like, you know, there's kind of overt arrogance and there's sort of like an arrogance that comes about through just being really smart and making a lot of money young. So it's, it might not be a malicious thing, but it, you know, you, you know, you've had a few successful businesses, you've made a lot of money. It's, it's, I feel like it's not, I mean, I'd probably be like that too. I'd think I know everything and no one can tell me wrong, you know? So I don't know if kind of just through circumstance, maybe he also kind of thought he knew better or shut himself off rather than sort of arrogance or something. You mentioned early on about some town in England where it worked. And I, I was hoping you would say more about it later. Like what was the, how long did it quote unquote work for? What was the end of it? You remember what I'm talking about? I think you're talking about Bourneville, which was related to Cadbury's who are the chocolate makers. Right. Um, I will be honest. I don't know more, but I do know that is always the company town example that is given in uh, business business school seminars and books and stuff. Um, but no, that's a good point. I should actually look up some of these company towns and like how successful they were. Um, what was the drama? I wonder, because th- this is all back in the industrial revolution, right? I wonder, <laughs> wonder what sort of drama went down there as well. Well, so let's talk about wh- wh- where did you grow up? What country did you grow up in? I grew up in London, in England, oh, Okay, yeah, so, which is where I am right now. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you're five hours ahead? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. What is your uh, tea flavor of choice? What is my what? Your tea flavor of choice. Oh, I'm having some tea right now. It is. Of um, course I you like, are. That's why I asked you. I am. That's why you asked me. Um, I like an Assam or uh, an Irish breakfast. Um, those are not always available. So I'm happy with an English breakfast, like a nice, strong black tea. You have something. Well, and I, am, and I am very American right now. I'm drinking. Got a, co- a coffee. A Dunkin' Ice <laughs> coffee, which yeah. I was I was in England. Uh, not too long ago, okay. iced coffee, not a thing. I went to a Dunkin' Donuts, didn't have iced coffee. Do we have Dunkin' Donuts? You have few of them. Okay. And I think at Costa, I was able to get iced coffee, but okay. But people don't, like here, year round, hot or cold, whether you live mm-hmm. in the Northeast or the South, they're both things that, it's just like a mood, right? Do I feel like an iced there? I guess the assumption is it's rainy and cold all the time. You don't want it, but you guys just don't. When I ordered an iced coffee, I forget where I was. The first thing they said to me was, uh, like, what do you, you mean a cold brew? I was like, no, just iced coffee. They're like, we can put some yeah. ice in it. They didn't quite understand. But, oh, oh, you were probably here at the wrong season. But yeah, like you said, I think. Um, but there's a bit co- Yeah, this was the summer, but they it wasn't like. The ever, summer. They didn't that say. That was we, weird. But they didn't say we only have anyhow. I just thought I'd. But coffee, coffee has grown a lot in this in this country. We, we have a Costa now. We have a Costa here in Georgia, which I was very excited. Oh, about. cool! I can tell you what I love the most. When I was traveling, we were on the road. Uh, uh-huh. I went to Leon. That was that was delicious. Big fan so, of Leon. Leon is good. So for people listening, Leon is like healthy fast food. It's really nice. Did you have the? Did you have this? Oh, bless you. Um, did you have the superfood salad? I had, oh, I want to say I had some kind of sandwich, some kind of maybe a healthy chicken thing. I don't remember. I'd have to go check my, I, I don't remember. I bet my, they, my guy traveled with her. They have this salad. It's the superfood salad. It's literally peas and broccoli. And when you eat that, you do not need to eat for like the rest of the day. And I don't understand like what they do to their, I'm, I'm sure there's some genetic component, what they do to their peas and broccoli, whereby you're like, oh, I'm I'm not hungry for the next 24 hours. It's quite, um, it's it's cool, yeah. So 
in, in terms of industry, America America has has grown through the old ideas, right? Work hard, right? And you will be rewarded, right? You will eventually be able to buy a house in the suburbs and at the end they give you a nice watch and that dream was very real for my parents, okay? So uh, I'm 50 years old. I know you're looking at me. You're like, that can't be possible. <laughs> but I'm 50 years old. So my parents' generation, they were 100% go to college, get good grades, don't make waves. And I was like most teenagers, like, what are you talking about? I'm only going to make waves. That's what I'm here to do. I knew I, knew I wasn't going to be the nine to five type. I didn't know what I wanted. Podcasting didn't exist yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I knew I wanted to just express myself in some way, right? So as I... I, I was embarrassed to tell people I didn't go to college. I was terrified when I would go to parties that people would say, what school are you in or what school did you go to? Literally like afraid, right? Like now it's all the rage. Oh, don't go to college. Like, you know, be an entrepreneur, like not so much. Even though we did have examples, even though back then Bill Gates didn't go to college, but like that was like the only example, right? And now we- Well, have- he dropped out, Right whatever but like yeah. now it's every entrepreneur right and again like that word is just just means like like if you look at if you here's a great here's a great little tidbit okay when you look on your linkedin and it says who's viewed your profile or who's viewed this post and it shows by job title and like 15 to 20 percent is founder right and what was that 10 years ago one percent right mm-hmm. like i don't i i took the word founder like out of my LinkedIn, because it's just like everybody you meet is like founder doesn't mean has a business. It means has an idea. Yeah. Whether it may have ever, it may never even gotten to the startup. Right. Yeah. So anyhow, back to this idea of, of like, if you worked, if you worked for, let's just use the, the, the motor industry, right? If you live in Detroit or one of those cities or somewhere in Ohio, like Everybody works either for the big company or like the aftermarket manufacturers. Like everybody works for these things and it's it's a nice living and you eventually get benefits. I mean, you get benefits and like this whole idea of like doing a good thing, like that was enough, right? And then somewhere, you know, it became more like, what are they really doing for you, this company? And you work, you, you like, they tell you when you can go on vacation. Like, that's bullshit, right? Like, you should be able to say when you go on vacation, right? And this whole idea, to it's flipped completely now, right? Especially post-pandemic. It's like, I'm not going to leave my house, and I can work anywhere I want, and you can't make me come in. Now, is that going to switch back eventually? Maybe. But it's almost the complete opposite. But this idea of... I'm getting to a point, trust me. This idea of like we're doing good and we, like we're we care about you and and a lot of these like the ones that become these these sort of like cultish things that you know, if you look at the WeWorks and you look at the the um what's her name? The Theranos lady, right? Elizabeth Holmes, yeah. Yeah, like it's made a lot of room for those people. Now there's always hucksters, there's always scam artists, there's always charlatans, right? But it's definitely left a lot of room of this like fake it till you make it used to be like a cool phrase and now it's like well you can just say whatever you want right now it's fraud (laughs) right so uh, again i don't know how you you grew up but 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 you've you've obviously focused a lot on business so kind of what are your thoughts on this current state of affair do you think do you think the companies will eventually get their revenge and like the economy will dip and they'll be like yeah you're gonna come in the office now buddy yeah so um I actually slightly disagree with what what 
you've said about where we're, where we are at now. I don't know if you listened to the last episode of the uh, of the podcast where I, I interviewed. Okay, cool. So the last episode was in. Um, it was an interview with Dan Lyons, who um, wrote, uh, who spent some time at HubSpot, the company, um, and he wrote a book called Disrupted. Um, I think it's. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did did you make a new episode recently? That was the final one. No, it was episode eight. No, it went out in January. No, because I did. You add one. It was a, it was like a bonus. So it was like the story of Tony's finished, I, and I we're going to speak to Dan. I read that book. It's the last book. Oh, I you read. did? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, tune into the interview with him. He's why really good. You, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> he was, Matt, he was if you're in the feed. Make sure we put in a bonus episode. It's in the feed. It was it was the day after. It was the week after the the final episode of Dan um, Nas. I'm sorry, but but now you have something nice to listen to after after our interview. Um, so. Um, yeah. So yeah. So interviewed interviewed Dan Lyons, and he talked about this really well because um, I mean, okay, you mentioned WeWork. I'm I'm trying to think how to formulate this thought. You mentioned WeWork. Can I quickly um, tell people what about the book? Yes. Okay. So the book was he's this writer. He's probably my age who went to work for this startup, right? Uh, not sorry, not startup, a tech HubSpot, right? And he basically was like, wait a minute, they're telling you that they're paying you less but giving you free candy and foosball? That's bullshit. You should ask mm-hmm. for money. Yeah. Right? And yeah. and like they basically called him Boomer and made fun of him. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was – I read I, – it's like the last book I read. Like I said, I just – I couldn't put it down. Um, and this idea – but that was pre-pandemic though. It was – sorry, that reminds me um, – I'm going to be vague on details, but oh, a no. friend of a friend of mine who's a journalist uh, at one of these publications that is owned by a big tech mogul. Um, I remember one year for Christmas they got like new iPads and new like Apple watches and stuff. And my friend called me from this Christmas party, being like, "What is this stuff? Why don't they just give me like more money? I don't want all this." And it was fantastic because I was like, "Like this stuff doesn't work on journalists." Do you know what I mean? Like no one's impressed by like. New iPad and whatever. It's like, dude, just give, just give me better healthcare or whatever. I don't, I don't well, want. Well, you know, Chris Rock, Chris Rock just said that in his special. Did he? Yeah, he said he said um, these companies are like, for every car you buy, we'll donate two hundred fifty dollars to charity. And he's like, why don't you just give me the two hundred fifty dollars? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, though. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree. So um, in that episode, so Dan Dan talks about exactly what you said, and I I actually feel slightly differently. I feel like. I mean, I'm of this generation that kind of came about in the whole like, and in, in, in the whole kind of like, you know, work is a great thing. It's purpose. And by the way, I absolutely love work. I love working. As soon as I started working, I was always a very studious, nerdy kid. And as soon as I got my first job, I was like, I'm really into this, dude. I just, I love working. Uh, I love what I do. Uh, even if I don't like what I do, just the concept of work is something I'm really into. Well, so we, I just want to give. Well, I think we should break that down a little bit though, because some might say, well, you're a journalist. Yeah. You you picked a subject you like and you're yeah. enjoying it. And yeah. you know, I I don't like my job, but I have to feed yeah. my family, so I so I do it. But you're saying No, that's cool. But, but you're saying I enjoy the idea of work. Oh, so, I even yeah, I love the idea of work as so well. So what are the so tell me what are some of the less 
happy parts that you still enjoy because I'm trying to wrap my brain around this concept. I mean, to, I mean, so I mean, my job is great and I love it, but it's very uncertain. The media industry has been shrinking for the past decade and a half, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, I'm now freelance. I used to be staff, and I left my staff job at the BBC because uh, I was like, I want to do my own thing. Just uh, I still do a lot of stuff for them. They're a great place, but anyway, so like there is a lot of uncertainty in my everyday life. I. Uh, do not get paid <laughs> that well, given how much I work, especially. So it's not just roses and stuff, but like, you know, I just love the concept of work. But the reason I say that is because I think a lot of these companies, you mentioned WeWork is a really good example. You know, they kind of talk about this whole thing, like thing of like finding purpose through work, which is something I legit believe in. But I think that ended up kind of um, in a position where workers were very much taken advantage of. Like, you know, the whole like, you know, poor, I mean, I mean, listen to any podcast or reporting about WeWork and people talk about like breaking their backs for that company because they really believed in the mission and whatever. And, you know, just being let go, like they didn't matter. Like you hear that story again and again. Um, and so I, I feel like that whole um, ethos has really taken advantage of, especially of millennials who want to kind of like get meaning and purpose through work. It's really kind of taken advantage of them, you know. Um, so, yeah, I do think there, there is that thing. You know, and it's kind of funny because I studied economics and most of my class went into banking, which I was never going to do. And I found deeply depressing. But I've always found something quite refreshing about that world in its honesty, that it's like we're here to make money. We're not do gooders. We don't give a shit about like being good people and we're going to work you to the bone and we're going to pay you for it. Do you know what I mean? There's an honesty to that. Um, and I mentioned that just because like you know, I've talked about all this stuff with tech, but there's also like a lot of, frankly, sociopathic people who run these companies. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of damage that they do to their well, to their I workers and their employees. But it's all under the guise of changing the world and we're doing good and we're such good people. And I'm like, at least in the city or on Wall Street or something, there's no such pretense. Did, did, you, read, um, did, did you read Liar's Poker? I love, I love that book and I love Michael Lewis. So uh, he's love on, yeah. So yeah. he's gone on to write a ton of books, but but that was one of the first books that I read mm -hmm. twice. Um, yeah, that's great. And uh, that's my top three most read books. I love that book. Right, what, are the other so two? what are the other two? Um, the other one is "Winners Take All" by Anand Giridharas, which um, it's 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 "Winners Take All: The Elite Charade of Changing the World." So it is all about like you know these kind of big change the world social entrepreneurs and how they actually like perpetuate inequality. Um, and then there's a book called Future Sex by Emily Witt that I like. She she explores all these different sort of subcultures around sort of like new ways of having relationships. And it's actually like the final chapter of it is amazing because it's actually an amazing way of looking at the economy and how it's affected women. But through looking at like different like sexual subcultures and attitudes and stuff, it's really, really interesting and well done. So I, I refer to those three books often. Um, so I kind of dig back into them a lot. So yeah, well, but um, but Lies Poker. What I love about Lies Poker. So anyone who's not read it, it's about when Michael Lewis worked at this Bond firm um, that kind of fell apart in a spectacular fashion. And he talks about how he wrote it as a cautionary tale. But for years, people were like, "Oh my god, I went into like trading because of that book. It really inspired me." It's like Wall Street, right? Yeah. People yeah. idolize Gordon Gecko, right? Who's yeah. like a motherfucker, right? Yeah. Uh, and then like, but there's an honesty, you know, I do right. appreciate that honesty. Right. And at least they were getting paid for like, it's like, you're going to work to the bone, blah, blah, blah. And you're going to get paid. Right. You know, uh, so. the, the thing that, um, the thing, uh, that, but getting back to this idea of, so 
I'm in the obstacle racing industry. I don't know if you looked anything about me at all. It's fine if you didn't. I thought you could be you could be a fresh new face. Sometimes that's exciting. She's shaking her head now. So <laughs> my day job, air quotes, uh, is doing what I do this, but with this very specific niche sport called obstacle racing. So 10 years ago, I decided to start a podcast about it. It became a media company, okay? But I also like talking to people about a lot of other things besides that. So I have this show, which is my Atlanta podcast, where, yes, you don't live in Atlanta, but uh, it's it works to just... I called it that because it was starting to be local people, and then it's actually how I met Jay. I didn't, oh, cool. I didn't know that uh, How Stuff Works, or as Jay says it, How Stuff Works, uh, was in Atlanta. And I was like, mm-hmm. cool. And I met him at that studio and we've become great friends and i love there's, so, there's a lot of media people in atlanta i understand yes there is um uh and they're filming everything here but anyhow where was i going so i cover this world called obstacle racing the biggest company is this company called spartan race you may have heard of them um and they are hiring and they put like we want a marketing uh, manager, a social media manager, and on their posting it said, must live in Boston or Orlando and um, travel X amount of percent of the year. Now, if you just if you just limited yourself to those two comp- to those two cities, you literally just took out 99% of the workforce who would be willing to do a job for a company we're going to be traveling mostly anyway because then it's, it's an events company. And that's because the owner, this guy Joe, is my age or a little bit older and thinks in that old way. Well, if you're not willing to come in the office four days a week, I don't want you. I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think that's where you find the best people. You know, my friend is a coder, right? And he makes lots of money and he keeps getting recruited higher and higher. Because they know you don't have to come into the office to do good work. So that's what I was talking about. Yeah, but but I do wonder about different industries and different types of work because there is also so with me, like journalism, so much of the best ideas come out of just being in one space and like kicking things back and forth with people. And um, I think there's a lot to be said for being present. And there is some research. I don't have it to hand, but there is. A, so I had actually interviewed. Um, there was a business school prof- professor, Andre Spicer, I interviewed in episode seven. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he has done this research. Uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's done research, which shows a lot about kind of being in the office physically is very kind of important in terms of getting promoted and getting higher up. So I, I don't know, maybe for tech or coding or something, it works that you can just be every anywhere. But I think a lot of other kind of industries, that isn't really the case. And, you know, I really like in-person life. I actually, so, you know, I said, I kind of, it took me a long time to, I I said, I had a staff job at the BBC um, and then I left. It took me a long time to leave largely because I liked being in an office and I liked like being forced to be around people who I probably wouldn't have interacted with daily just because of like, they're a different age or they're in a different uh, place in life. but, But, but think about who you are and what you do, right? Yeah. You and I are folks who like to learn things, mix it up, ask a lot of questions, learn new things, right? There are a lot of people who are not that, who are extreme introverts, right? I have a, yeah. I have a friend who works a, he works, he gets paid very well for a, an industry that makes like tiny parts, right? Huge company. They ship parts all over the world. And he essentially has an assembly line job and he's a very smart guy, right? But you stay there long enough, you make really good money and they have very like, specific deadlines and number of mistakes you can make so they keep the best people. And he said they've been doing a lot of this. Like 
pulling people in. First of all, they have to bribe them. They're like, if you come in, we'll give you like extra overtime or whatever. Sit down and talk about whatever. And they're like, what can we do to welcome new people? And what can we do to this? And my friend, like nobody was raising their hand because, and my friend raised his hand and said, what if I just want to come here and like do my job and go home? Mm-hmm. He has no interest in in any of that. And he's not, it's not because he's an introvert, but it's like, I'm not here for value. I'm not here. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. And so That's I think, legit. That's right, legit. But, but this forced thing of like, yeah. Like we're gonna, we're gonna have do family this. and community. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, great. Okay. And, yeah, and yeah. some of these companies, by the way, that we were talking about, the older companies, like it yeah. was that way. They didn't have to say, you know, we think you're family. They just did. They, yeah. You know, they do the company picnics and they do, yeah. and it, you did feel taken care of by your coworkers yeah. and your boss. But now it sounds really good to say those things. So let's say those things, whether they're true or not. Safety is our number one priority. I was making fun of that even before the pandemic. I'm like, no, it's not. If it was, you would, you would, you would be, you'd be walking through like a maze of like bubble wrap, right? Like that's yeah. would be safety yeah. is your number one priority. So yeah. it's this idea. Well, actually, Go ahead. actually, sorry, this is interesting because, you know, I mentioned a previous podcast I'd done called the orgasm cult. Um, so that very much looked to, it, it looked to, the wellness industry as well and how like why so many women have gravitated to right. wellness who practices more, who is more full of shit than the wellness industry <laughs> by the way no that well no no that's true but an interesting a few interesting things um i i will show you why this is relevant to what you said a few interesting things so actually because i've done a lot of reporting on wellness and i you know like you said it's like there is a lot of stuff that's full of shit but very quickly in my reporting i, w- I was kind of hearing the story again and again by women who would pretty much say the same story, but with different details of like some variation of them going to the doctor with a health issue and the doctor either ignoring them, not knowing what it was like at best, at worst, like actually gaslighting them, being like, no, you're not in pain or no, you don't have this issue. Do you know what I mean? And this is something that society does to women a lot, makes us, you know, doubt our instincts. Um, So I was basically in different ways, whether it was to do with like chronic illness or fertility or like diet or whatever, hearing this story from women and then they'd end up um in the wellness industry and actually instead of me being skeptical i actually kind of like um because i'd kind of found it like as a as a very intelligent woman i found it kind of embarrassing i was like what is this stuff other women are doing i find this embarrassing but after these stories i was like this is cool so many women they're not going to take no from their doctors and they want to heal and they want to get better so they're going to try different stuff and i actually thought that was really cool and so i say this because that was a big part of um, the orgasm cult and looking at like, you know, all these women who'd gone to try this uh, sexual wellness practice and, you know, they'd all had a similar story. And a lot of them, even with like, you know, they had they had a, a history of trauma and psychologists and doctors hadn't really been able to help them or take them seriously. Anyway, this is all to do with the fact that- Or worse, that taking part- advantage of them. Yes, exactly. That, that unfortunately happens. So- that podcast, a lot, a large part of it was looking at women and wellness and the failures of mainstream medicine. The other part was also looking at um, the startup world and the whole change the world concept because that company was big on that. But all of this is to say both the startup world and wellness have an, an interesting thing in terms of um, they are both also about community um, and like, you know, exact, exactly the stuff we talked about in Cost of Happiness, but building communities community and stuff. So actually Andre Spicer was also in that podcast and he talked about this a lot in terms of like people under 40 and like not having those traditional communities anymore. Um the older people might have had like I don't know the church, the mosque, the you know the synagogue or like we've all lived in this area for like generations and stuff. And so like now kind of anyone under under 40 kind of 
mostly has to find community in new ways. And the wellness industry is one way where like, you know, it's not just your yoga group that becomes like your family, right? Um, and kind of a lot of these tech companies do something similar too. Um, so I think that's why like this whole concept of, oh, you know, I'm just going to clock in nine to five and leave. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of us might look for family through our job. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily either. I, I, I don't think so either. I mean, I've seen, so I've seen it in the fitness industry. So in yeah. obstacle, yes. so in, yeah. in obstacle racing, you find a lot of people like who weren't athletes their whole life. You know, I didn't start, I decided to sign up for a Tough Mudder when I was 40 because it seemed like this crazy thing to do. And I did. And it, I ended up being one of the people that would keep going. Almost every single person that you meet who, 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 who stays, who does, who kind of becomes in the industry is like, I signed up with five people from work and we all did it, but I was the only one that came back. Or I signed up with five people from work and I was the only one who showed up, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you find people who, who you're, you're doing the races with, but like, what are you doing to train? What are you doing to eat? Like you, like those kinds of things. And so people feel that bond, whether it's obstacle racing or CrossFit or Muay Thai or whatever they get into. And so that mm -hmm. like people, my opinion, people are dying for connection and dying. Mm -hmm. for, even though we say like with phones and we're getting more and more disconnected, I know cause I've seen it, how badly people want to connect with other people. And I just think the younger generation doesn't see work necessarily as that thing because, you know, there are run clubs like at every brewery and we have, I don't know what it's like over in England, but like craft brewing has become this massive thing over here. Yeah. Yeah. Every brewery has a Monday night run. And yeah. I think that used to be maybe more how people played like softball or volleyball mm -hmm. or whatever those little, uh, what do you call those? Adult leagues. Yeah. They meet. They run a few miles. They have a few beers together. Like that's the, yeah. they they meet members of the opposite sex. It's all people like twenties to thirties. If I showed up, they'd be like, "Who's the dinosaur?" You know what I mean? Like I feel like that's and and just I I don't know. It's I don't I don't know a lot of people who really identify and are like I love my company because they do X. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. But I think people who are so into work like that might not join a company. They will become entrepreneurs. Right, but yeah. this is my question is how long can this thing last of yeah, this know. idea of I don't want to have to come into work. I want to – again, like I think maybe maybe hybrid is the thing. Like, hey, come in three days a week so that we know you're working. Because then there's a whole idea of too of like I actually get more done at home because I don't sit yeah. in traffic. Right, I'm not yeah. stopping for all the coffee. If you have kids as well, if you have kids, it's right. like right. hugely beneficial. I don't know. It's really hard because um, – <laughs> I'm quite I'm quite a bad person to ask these questions about because I'm actually quite a workaholic. Uh, so Clearly, like, you said I love work. I don't. I love the idea of work. I've never heard anyone even say those words. <laughs> there's, so man, there's there's two there's two times in the year where I absolutely lose my shit. One is August, and the other is you know that week between Christmas and New Year when no one is available. Right. Like these are the two times in the year where I just absolutely go crazy. Um, <laughs> And luckily this year during August, I had two reporting trips. So I was like, I was just like, oh my God, like the universe is looking out for me. <laughs> and whenever I see these things of like, you know, people wanting to like quit work, I'm like, oh, really? Why? Um, so I, I don't know. Um, in terms of broader, I do wonder though how much is, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of people my age. So I'm like in my uh, mid thirties, so kind of um, people my age and the whole, you know, great resignation with people just suddenly quitting their jobs. I do wonder how much of it does come from this, so many of them being sold this idea that like your company cares about you and 
you know, purpose and whatever. And then, you know, them just being exploited by the company and not appreciated, not paid properly. Um, but I think it's the appreciation even for a lot of people that, you know, you're just expected to kind of make this your life. Um, so I kind of just wonder like how much that is really the issue that maybe if companies were a bit more, you know, I keep talking about banking. Um, I mean, maybe it's also different times. I feel like I've never heard someone in banking say, you know, I, I left because I didn't feel appreciated. I think it's just well known that like you're here to like work ridiculous hours and, you know, end up with a Coke problem and make a lot of money. Like, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, I, I do wonder how much it's the honesty where, well, I think it's a bit I, like like everything in life, right? Like, say I don't know you, you know, like you hear the story again and again, like yeah. What were you gonna say? So say you hear the story, like I don't know, like people hook up and they get hurt when they're like, oh, the other person made me think it was something more. Do you know what I mean? Like that kind of variation well, so, so, of like you know just feeling misled or deceived, and I think that might be why we have the great resignation and the phenomenon you're talking about. I wonder how much of it is just people feeling deceived that like. You know, well, there's a, just there's be a, honest that you're here to do this work. And right. blah, well, blah, there's, blah. A, there's a specific word that's coming up for me uh, that is very important to me called boundaries. And I yes. think people yeah. are very vague when it comes to money and boundaries. And yes. most people, like myself, learn the hard way, right? Okay. So getting there's always going to be some form of like perhaps misunderstanding or miscommunication. But I learned very early in life, if I want something, I have to be really black and white about it. Right. That's great. And I always remember the first time it paid off for me that I thought I will always do this. So, um, I was told something, it didn't happen and they had told me something else. And I said, but I thought it was this and like, no, 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 we changed that. So I'm like, okay, I will get it in writing next time. Right. So, I was working for a company and I said, I get this much, you know, if it's a five day trip, I get, I get five days pay and a half day for the travel day. Right. So sure enough, they weren't going to pay me for the half day. And I said, and they're like, well, we don't do that. And I was like, well, I have this email here. And they're like, oh, okay. And even though the email isn't some 12 page contract, it's something, right? Yeah, it's something. So it's like what I would teach my kids or what I would tell anybody is like, if somebody says That's something, great. like you and I have this conversation over Zoom, I go, hey, listen, when we're done, just so we both don't forget, I'm just going to send you a couple sentences about what we agreed to. Cool. And they go, great. yeah, of course. Great. Um, That's good. Good for you for doing that. That's well, good. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like I said, yeah. but most of us learn the, the, the hard way. The hard way, of course. But I think when people, you know, like, like I turn my phone off, it's like seven o'clock. Right. And that's how I do business. And I'm okay with that. Right. And other people are like, Oh, they, they did this and they did this. And it's like, well, can you just tell them like, like, Oh, but if they don't call me and I don't answer, it's like, yeah, okay. Well then you tell them that's not how it, you know what I'm saying? Like if they're not like, they don't have the right to have your whole life that they can wake you up at two in the morning. You know what I mean? You're not a doctor, right? No, totally. But I do think there is a power dynamic. Like, if you're in an industry where you're easily expendable or, like, you know, like, you're good at what you do and you have a good track record and stuff, if someone's younger and they're new to an industry or they're just not as good or um, – I mean, there's all sorts of other dynamics to come, to do with sort of like class and race and gender and no, stuff where like certain people can't, is that, yeah. Is, is that I would, so I had a staffing company, right, as I said, and I'd been in situations where like they wouldn't give us a lunch break, right? Yeah. And say, we've got to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, I, if you work 12, day, 12 hours and you don't eat, you're a bad performer and it's not how you take care of people. And so I had, I had said that to like, the client was like, 
working and I was like, we need to start breaking these people. They're like, well, we can't. I'm like, well, I'm going to. Like, that's how you take care of people. That's how you get them to, like, I'm not going to not have them eat for 12 hours. So I think like, and it's not like I was making so much money that I could afford to piss them off or whatever. I just like, I'm someone that learned like, this is how you, like, it doesn't. It's it's good being a good person and good business, right? Right. Like take care of your people. And then they take care of you. It's it's a basic concept. I think that's what mostly goes wrong is unfortunately is greed, right? Like these companies do make a lot of money. They are very successful. They could pay their people a little bit more, but they choose not to because they want to squeeze that many more dollars, right? Or they want to chase different goals. So, so you mentioned Zappos earlier. Did um, I mean I mentioned this in the podcast a lot, where it was so difficult to speak to people for that story. And like you know, I've I've reported on all sorts of kind of gnarly stories and stuff. That was the hardest story to get anyone to speak to me about. And it's incredible. Yeah, people were just afraid to talk um, about downtown project and about Zappos. So you're, you know, Zappos would, you know, it was allegedly often called the happiest company in America. And so what, 10 years later, no one wants to talk to some reporter from England about it? Like that is telling. Do you know what I mean? So But so this is back I don't know. This is back to the question though. So about Tony, if it wasn't Tony, if Tony wasn't malicious, right? Or we don't think he's some Machiavellian person, like who but I do. I do think he was arrogant, though. I think he was arrogant. But who were the people making these decisions? Like, I think specifically, you talked about the one of the guys who said, uh, you know, he was given a job that he didn't quite have the training for, but then expected all these things, and they kind of left him out to dry. And like, so whose fault is that? Tony's fault that he had bad managers. To uh, to some, he had bad managers, and also he implemented holacracy, which several people told me. Now this is oh, their that sounded opinion. horrible. That sounded horrible. I, yeah. As soon as I heard that, I go, "Oh boy, that's that's gonna lose." Now several people. This is their opinion, so I don't want to speak for Tony because none of us know what Tony was thinking. Um, but several people they believe that Tony, it, it, you know, they found him very conflict avoidant, and they were like, "That's why he was into holacracy because he wouldn't have to actually deal with managers." So yeah, he, it's not just that he had bad managers. People were saying that he was a bad manager. You know. That's so that's what did, I was hearing. So how did how did Zappos grow successfully? Like, was he less? Was he more conflict avoidant as he got older? Do you think, or richer? I mean, I, I wonder because Z- Zappos was very early in the whole e-commerce kind of cycle, so and they lucky. implemented some. Well, not not just lucky. I mean, Tony Tony did seem to be very smart with his. I mean, he he had several. Zappos, I think, was the third company that he. Uh, he he didn't he wasn't a founder but he was the ceo of and you know to have that that much multiple success like clearly he knew what he was doing so i guess zappos was great when it came to customer service i mean you talked about like getting free shipping and you know it was expedited and stuff like that was unheard of back then do you know what i mean like so the way we shop online a lot of that comes out of tony and zappos um i wonder how much you see the thing is you know i kind of keep talking about the context of the times I wonder how much that played into things too, because like, um, you know, you said holacracy sound, sounds awful. Holacracy was something people were talking about back then, and it was seen as new and innovative and like exciting. So, you know, I can see how a lot of these things in the context of the early 2010s, where it's all like utopia and positivity and like new ways of working and stuff, how they might have been cool. And also just to say, I, I think it's great to like experiment and try things out. And if they don't work, then it hasn't worked. That's cool. You know what I mean? So I don't think it's like an awful, terrible thing. Um, 
but I can't remember what your question was. Oh, this is about how Zappos became so successful. I mean, they were early to e-commerce. Tony had some really good ideas. And I think maybe a lot of these ideas and stuff fit into the context of the time, but might not have been sustainable long-term. But even you, that you feel ske- skeptical. You look skeptical. I'm, very, <laughs> I'm a very skeptical human being. If you haven't figured yeah. it out already, um, you don't seem very skeptical. Okay, good. I feel like yeah. I feel like I'm very skeptical. Like, okay. like getting older for me, like has been fascinating because you like you do hear yourself say things that you're sure the people in the generation ahead of you said. Right? My my parents thought my generation was lazy. Right? And of course. Oh. Who's you know? Of course, we all think that the millennials and whoever's younger than us are lazy. I think Gen Z are great, by the way. I think Gen Z are fantastic. So I don't even know yeah. what age that is. What what age? That's is like that? the I I think it's like people in their twenties. Okay. Um, yeah, I think they're great. I constantly overhear them, and I'm like, these kids are like really, especially like with kind of like social topics. I'm like, no, they're they're on the ball. I well, think the they're great. With, the problem with Gen X is that we're just called boomers now. We're not boomers. I have to point that we're out. We're not to boomers. People. I know no. but people call me boomer because no. I'm you, you know what I mean? And like like no 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 Is it your sentiment that like okay boomer? Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like <laughs> hey, it's like my kids call me that sometimes, right? It's like it's like no 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 that's people that's really white haired people. That's people that's, <laughs> that's people yeah. in their sixties. I'm Gen X. I'm you know what I mean? I'm like the Breakfast Club and Nirvana. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, uh you know, but this idea of like, well they're more entitled or they're lazier, I think older people just are always gonna think that. But I do I do think there's something to like entitlement in a way like like so for my generation if you were like a reality TV star you were you were somehow or a tabloid star like you were famous for doing nothing you were famous for being famous and we have seen that explode right with with YouTube and Instagram right you you like you didn't really contribute much other than people liked you but now you're starting businesses. I mean, I think this Logan Paul thing is actually a great example. Have you paid attention to that? Wait, he didn't he go away and then he came back? Is no. he that guy? No. Logan Paul started a, a a lot of them were doing like crypto and NFT businesses. Oh, yeah, and I hate that was, world. And, and this one was a well, of course you do because it's full of mostly full of shit people. Um, but uh she's I hate that world. I hate that world. So, sorry, I I um I met a bunch of early Bitcoin people back in 2011. Um, and even then I was like, they're always there. And then, you know, it all exploded and I was like, maybe I was wrong, but I think I wasn't. Anyway, so I'm, fe- I'm feeling a bit vindicated these days. But anyway, yes. Sorry. Just so as Logan aside. Paul has been extremely successful, right? He is like the textbook definition. So he launched a, 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 a drink called Prime and he signed a huge deal. Huge. Let's, let's see. I just want to Google it really quickly. Um, who owns uh, Congo Brands? Let's see. Anyway, tons of money, right? It's it's got a NAS club. It's got a it's got a deal with Arsenal. Like it's a real company, okay? And that's this guy, right? And he's just he's a great marketer, and he's only twenty seven, I think now, like only maybe less. So he launched one of these bullshit NFT projects, and guess what? It didn't go anywhere, and people lost a lot of money. So it's not just and- hey, it's not just hey, be in my club and buy my shirt or come to my event. This is a real thing where people can lose real money. But again, it's this yeah. ego and what did you call it? Arrogance and just not real, literally not being in touch with what happened. And so, um, first he just came out and was like, well, yeah, but. But the people who built it, the people who were supposed to build this thing for me, this game, this NFT, they failed. And what do you want me to do about it? And that was not good enough. So he came out and said, okay, I'll, I'll give some of the money back. 
but nearly not all of it. And he still hasn't even done that, right? And so where was I going with this? What were we talking about? Also, can I just say one thing that bothers me about NFTs is the art is so bad. It's like the art's really bad. Yeah, but see, NFT, I I think crypto, the thing with crypto, crypto went from replacing money to, okay, it's just an investment vehicle. It didn't replace money. It didn't, like, you can't use crypto. I I know. I'm giving you their idea. Their their idea, This is going to replace money. This is better than being in the bank. We don't need them. This is going to, right? Then that went buy pretty quickly and it became okay cool invest money make money it's an investment tool like anything else like a stock or anything else nfts went from like ooh, amazing art to wait a minute isn't this just a jpeg like that it went pretty quickly like that's nfts true. already already over that's true sorry i need to have a really small, quick rant about crypto the other thing because i remember back in those early days and all the early into the sun by the way i'm sitting here in the shade oh nice place. cool so give me just i don't want to i don't want to make noise while we walk so just give me walk into the sun because i've been sitting here kind of freezing and like waiting for the sun to come over this way and it never did <laughs> it's it's not coming for, it's like you you got to go to the sun it's I making know. you work i think uh yes <laughs> yeah. the lesson is don't wait for the things that you want go get them <laughs> uh, i don't know maybe we'll see i think that's a general good attitude to life it's like oh, if you want something go get it don't don't wait for it Oh, that's good. Oh, I'm sorry, but that's great. That's a good lesson. He said, uh, "He said if you don't ask, you don't get." Exactly. So ask, and the worst thing is you won't get. But if you don't ask, you still won't get, right? Um, what I was going to say about crypto was that one of the things back in like 2011, 2012, before it got really mainstream, that really bothered me is like you know they'd all sit around. Um, these early Bitcoin people would talk about like fiat currency and central banks and stuff. And it's like, like, okay, I studied economics at a very hardcore economics school and monetary economics is so difficult. It is so complicated. And a bunch of like, you know, random dudes who just built a website are sitting there like discussing monetary economics. And I was just say, you, you honestly have no idea what you're talking about. And that was part of what annoyed me about it. It's like, you know, and then I just remember like all the early stuff that would happen like on Silk Road and stuff. It's like, dude, this is just for like money laundering and like, you know, illicit transactions and stuff. This is, it's got nothing to do with like, I don't know, the Austrian school of like monetary, whatever. It's like, no. But anyway, that's my little uh, crypto rant. I'm feeling very vindicated. Because I'm sure there's <laughs> been, I, I'm sure there's been many people over time that thought, how can we fix the, ba- how can we replace the banking system? Right. And, and they were economists. <laughs> economists. <laughs> but, the, but the tech finally got good enough that someone's like, wait a minute, we can, what if we, you know what I mean? And so the, I, I don't think it's ever going to be dead, dead. Do you, do you think crypto is going to go? I mean, I think it's always going to be like an investment vehicle. Don't you think? Maybe like a small scale thing, but crypto has definitely not become as mainstream as the crypto people said. Right. Like I said, they, they, they were saying it's going to replace money. Yeah. Like here's so so it's funny because I in 2017 a friend of mine it was like at 2000 and a friend of mine was heavy into it and he said Matt it's gonna hit 10,000 by Christmas I said there's not a chance it's gonna hit 10,000 and sure enough it was like at 12 or 15 by Christmas wow I was like I think I should start buying some of this and I went to my wife yeah. and I said and he talked about dollar cost averaging which I'm sure you'll love as an economist so <laughs> what that means uh, listeners is you just put in 20 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week whatever it is no matter what so yeah. whether it's at whether it goes up or down, you put in the same amount, just watch it slowly grow. 
And he said to me something that I just, it just stuck with me at the time. And he's like, this is a smart guy. This is not some loony crypto guy. It's a regular smart guy who's been a successful business owner. He said, Matt, what if one Bitcoin is worth a million bucks? And I'm like, that's, that's like, it's like a pretty good investment, right? Like what just just own one Bitcoin, just own half a Bitcoin. Like, why not? And just like let it sit there. Cause it might be, right? And that was the thought at the time for me. And then by accident, I found an email I had sent to someone in like 2011 that said, Do you know about crypto and are you thinking of buying any? And all that does is make you just like want to throw up because you think, well, I'd be rich. The truth is, I'm sure I would have sold much sooner than, you know, when it was at one cent, I'm sure I would have sold it. A dollar, you know, mean, or fifty dollars. Yeah, yeah, there's no yeah. chance I would have held it to ten thousand. Yeah, but anyhow, yeah. Um, there there are people like really like the nerdy tech people, like coders. That I think those people are some of the like they're not the douchey crypto guys. They're like the guys that are like I I like they they have calls every week and they really still think. Well, look, they did it in where do they do it? Argentina. I, but I still don't think crypto is that mainstream in Argentina. Oh, I, they, I, well, I, they were saying like it was. Um, not not the way they're talking about it. So I'm like, if you have a country with like a history of hyperinflation, then it's still like a niche thing, from my understanding. I will say I'm not I'm not expert on the Argentine banking system, so I will caveat that. What what are you? What what are you an expert? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I mean, be, being a journalist, you you kind of know a lot about a few things, but I wouldn't say I'm expert in anything. Um, yeah. How do you how do you choose projects? Um, things that I'm interested in, but they they tend to be the same topic. So a lot about the the economy, um, a lot about psychology. I like the intersection between the two, actually. Um, so the whole like economy and psychology, did, thing, did, the economy and the psyche are like my two favorite. Two, did two you watch? Ones. Did you watch the Nexium documentary? I didn't. No, I try not to watch too many things about cults or abuse, or whatever, just because a lot of my work is about that. Um, so. Uh, in terms of my own having a bit of space. I haven't seen the Nexium though. Well, there's also, sadly, a lot of documentaries that are just like, oh, this is the thing to do now and people make them. And I am such a fan, okay? Tell you how old I am, Gen Xer. I would rent documentaries, okay? I would go to Blockbuster. There was a little documentary section. And yeah. I'd be like, what is this about? This looks good. Yeah. And I would rent it and I would go home. And I would watch it. Sometimes yeah. it was bad, but I would finish it because yeah. I started it. Now you can yeah. start one on Netflix 10 minutes in. This is garbage. I'm passing on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But the Nexium one is is well done. I've heard it's good, yeah. And... I have been in some voluntary organiz- some voluntary organizations that I see that weren't cults, but that they have those similar qualities and where you can see where the wrong leader goes wrong. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. when you're in any kind of closed group, right? Like that, or in like, it's like, let's call it false intimacy, Right. Isn't this great? We're both learning this thing. And you kind of like that whole world is it it becomes it can become very sexually charged. Okay. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not about sex, because I know you did the sex cult thing. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? And so this idea of like the th- why are you laughing so hard? No, because I think Oscar Wilde had a quote, something like everything is about sex except for sex, which is about power. Exactly. <laughs> right. So right. So you get you get you get, interestingly enough, like op- the stuff that I'm into, obstacle racing, okay, you find a lot of people either recently divorced or would get divorced because it's people in their 30s and 40s 
and their husband isn't or wife isn't paying attention to them, and now their body looks different and they're fit and they're meeting these new people who are. Do you see what I'm saying? How there's mm-hmm. sort of this recipe for like infidelity or or people to just like like appreciate you. So I actually, without we don't have to go into it, but I actually wrote a story like a meet the Me Too story that happened in my industry, and uh, I actually was and am being sued for it. I've had several people threaten to sue me. And uh, this guy actually did. And we can talk about it more offline. Thankfully, I found some amazing First Amendment lawyers who were helping me. Um, But he preyed upon these women, right? These women joined this Facebook group, right? I have to be very careful what I say. And uh, he would allegedly like just message them, right? You want to go for a run? And there were women who would be like, who the fuck is this guy? No, bye. But then there were many other people. And I'm sure he's not the only guy who, okay, like you're showing interest in me. You see what I'm saying? It's a very vulnerable mm-hmm. place. Yeah. So yeah. I've been in volunteer organizations where uh, a lot of sex is happening because, again, like you're in this, you're in this, I don't want to call it false intimacy because some of it's real. You, you know what I'm saying? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, what's it called? Well, you're in a community. There's like some sort of shared value, probably some sort of like shared goal or something which creates intimacy yeah well and you're you're i guess vulnerable is the is the word that's being used yeah. right yeah. like people are sharing very vulnerable things about themselves and then yeah. well now i feel connected to you or let's act upon it or i think volunteer organizations can very easily be manipulated and abused if you're that kind of person because yeah. It is about giving back and it is about you volunteer back for the organization because it's giving you so much. You, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> sorry, I keep, la- I keep laughing because I keep thinking of various other things. Um, sorry, this isn't funny, but it kind of is. The reason I'm laughing is I remember once watching this, um, this video that this psychologist had done um, about like signs of narcissism and different types of narcissism. And this comes up a lot in my work in terms of exactly like kind of a lot of abusive dynamics, especially in kind of groups and organizations and stuff. And he was, he was talking about sort of, um, you know, there are certain types of narcissistic people who are very giving and, you know, they're not like loud and showy. They're actually like always helping people and they're very sweet and giving. And he was saying how like, um, he, you know, he was a psychologist. He was like the number of people who've come into my office, like traumatized by someone who then say, this person is a pillar of the community. The I think pillar of the community needs to be in the DSM. <laughs> one, of the, one of the sort of like, you know, one of the sort of like traits of narcissism. Um, and I think as a journalist as well, I think we have a bit of that as well. Anyone who's like super do-gooder. And I don't know if it's a bit of a British trait as well. It's like, what's going on there do you know what i mean people who are like like super super do good as in a way that is a bit like over the top well i think it does lead to that it leads to the dynamic you're talking about it's like oh but this person was just being helpful they were just being nice and then you know you roll forward four months later and they're or longer the comments that came in were i've seen this person help so many people at the race that's the cover yeah that's the cover and uh, I don't. I don't know if it's a, if if it's also me being a bit British because we find if anyone's too nice as Brits, we're a bit suspicious. Well, there, there are kind of certain jokes about why cults don't really happen in the UK, and one of them, I think, one of them is that, um, and also I, just people just not being into utopia because it's cold and wet. <laughs> but see, I thought Brits. I thought Brits 
were nice and accommodating and apologizing. Like, not quite as bad as Canada, but, like, I know some Brits that are kind of like that. They're they not, are. They're not brash, quote-unquote, like Americans. No, they, that is a British thing, but I think anyone who's overly kind of, like, real do-gooder, lovely, perfect, it's like, oh, it's a bit weird, so, so one of the shows, one of the shows that Jay did was the the hearts did you listen to that one no um so it's called broken hearts and it's about these two women who were adopting all these kids um but then it turns out they weren't feeding them and then they drove off a cliff it's like a famous story oh god yeah it's really horrible um but the women if you look at like their posts like every day was you know how amazing their kids were and the kids learned this and it's like we all like People say they were like fooled by that. It's like, well, was anybody fooled when you see those people posting? When you post the, when you see those couples that post constantly about how in love their they are? relationship, yeah, right. I mean, but, but I, yeah, but I do also think so, you know the the thing with all these stories is I also I think the vast majority. I mean, I'm I would say I'm an optimistic person, and I think the vast majority of people are actually decent and sweet and want to think the best of others. You know, I think that's a nice thing as well, which also kind of leaves people vulnerable. But like, I can imagine people being like, I mean, and I'm sure you've done this and we've all done this. Someone's someone's a bit suspicious, but we're like, oh, but maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe they're just a bit socially awkward. No, no. Maybe I don't I know the full that, picture. No, I gave up that a long time ago. Because <laughs> you're a Gen Xer. That's- <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that a trait we have? Um, I think Gen Xers are a bit more... Um, skeptical and also quite edgy as well i don't think it's a bad thing no no i'm no my wife and i were like maybe we're wrong but probably not we think that person's full of shit like you know what i'm saying yeah and And i yeah i don't know also matt if that's an age an age thing which uh, one of the beauties of getting older is becoming more because i think everyone i and i say this especially about women because i think every woman has a story of like you know, especially with a guy of like, I never really trusted him, but I felt bad or I thought I was being mean or like, you know, I thought maybe I'm the one with the problem and then getting into a horrible situation. Yeah, um, and I, I think that's, I also an think that's part of growing up though, too. Like the, this is it the is. worst thing I think for me. So I'm a parent. I have sons. I have two sons and one daughter and we know How old? what's that? How old? Uh, 15, 13 and nine. Okay, and cool. uh, like, I know that like heartbreak is coming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I know that's coming and I'm not looking forward to it. Conversely, this is why I can't listen to a 25 year old on a podcast talk about business or relationships or anything. It's because like, it's not about being older. It's that you haven't had your soul fucking crushed yet. And until yeah. you have a business deal go horribly wrong or a friend that you thought was your friend and stole money from you or some woman or man break your heart, right? You can't really... You know what I mean? It's like I see all these women now with like these Instagram accounts that like they're going to be relationship counselors because it's like, what's your experience? What's the longest relationship you've had? I mean, guys oh yeah, too. I find that funny. I find that funny because I I feel like relationship advice you want that from like a ninety year old, you know, me, being married three times, one of them went badly, one of them died, <laughs> then they m- remarried another one. Do you know what I mean? You kind of want like the whole gamut there, right? So, yeah. Uh, I, I, I know so there's something else I want to talk to you about about this uh, about business stuff. So when you were when you were BBC, I assume like they give you assignments and now you're just in a position where you're just like, okay, I'm gonna like did you just pitch this story to a bunch of folks and Jay's company was the one that picked it up? Yes, yes. Or, or I mean, I don't want to go into it too much, but there were other people who were interested but in different aspects of the story. but um, 
with Jason and the team. Well, I I mean, I don't want to just, I mean, I don't want to kind of, I mean, like, you know, there were certain people who were interested more in like the story of Tony. Um, Whereas I was very much interested in the angle about what does this say about tech's interest in community building and purpose and happiness? That was more my interest in the story, not like specifically about Tony or downtown. Right. And Jay told me that too. Jay said, this isn't going to be some like deep dive into like what happened that night. Like that's just part of the story. Um, What do you think happened though? What do I, when I heard the news that he died, I, you know, I said, I, um, I thought it was either suicide or self-harm gone wrong. Kind of like still what I think. More, more the latter probably, like, you know, someone in a depressed place, just not in a good place, making bad decisions, making self-harmy decisions, and this time it was dangerous. To, know? like, start a fire? Um, my understanding is that I think that might have been accidental, but it's also, like, you know, and, you, you know, you talked a little bit about your past, but, you know, when people are, like, depressed or they're in a bad place, they generally, you know, I mean, I've had this too. You act in a reckless way. Like you're not taking care of yourself. You're not eating good things. You're not clearing up around you. I mean, Tony had a thing for fire. Like um, in his people, people said that in his house, in the one he bought in Park City, there were always candles everywhere. So you can imagine you're burning candles all the time. And if you're like depressed or whatever, you might not be very attentive. Do you know what I mean? So like accidents can happen. I think, I think that's what... Like so, when I say self-harm gone wrong, I think it's that kind of general gamut of being in a bad place and being sloppy. And so dangerous things can, right. it's like if or, or things get out of hand, you know, things that for a, a healthy person, right. you can it, deal with it. They get out of hand. As someone who, who has personal experience with mental health and seen it in a lot of others, part of me is just like, I, there's an, there's another, like the real Tony was in there, right? Yeah. The guy that's writing business plans and on sticky notes and millions of dollar deals like if enough people could have got i know you said there were people that tried to help him but i feel like i i don't know like again i don't even know this guy i just feel this weird connection with him because of this relationship i built with him and this company over years like yeah if the right person had gotten in there and said look let's get you away from all these hangers on because it happens with musicians with a lot of people and they do get away from those people no always get sober or get on the right meds and they go oh wow that was a really horrible five or 10 year period not always i mean you know i mean you all know about this the whole kind of hitting rock bottom thing is like maybe tony didn't hit rock bottom Instead, he that happened. I kind of I don't know. Well, I you know what they say where we, you think, know where they say addicts end up, right? Like where they say we end up. No. Jails, institution, death. That's three three places. Jails, institution, death, or like as a born again Christian. Or and I've hit two of those three, so you can you can figure that, which is what happens okay. to most of us. Okay, cool. But that that helps <laughs> sort people out, doesn't it? Often, like right. But sometimes, sometimes you 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 go back out, as they say. So it's like, well, I guess it wasn't you weren't. You weren't in I, pain. From from what from what I understand of the situation, I think a lot of people tried with Tony and he just maybe wasn't ready to hear it, maybe didn't want to hear it or something. You know? And it makes me think, um, I don't know, because I think it can be hard with some of these people because people later say, you know, so and so person, why did no one say anything? Um, did you did you watch the documentary about Amy Winehouse? Yes. I'm pretty sure it was in that documentary where like her her friend, her childhood friend said about how he was worried about her and suggested rehab and she wrote rehab, right. the song. And, um, <laughs> cause I remember when that song came, came out and 
you know, so I'm a Londoner, right? And there is nowhere in London you could have gone where you would not have heard that at least twice an hour. So that song was playing everywhere. So it kind of felt for this poor childhood friend because he was saying, how, like, you know, I was really worried about her. And then she wrote the song that was playing everywhere where she essentially told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> and it's like, that's exactly what she's done. Do you know what I mean? And right. you get, I mean, you must have heard these stories with addicts where like someone tries to help them and they're just like, really mean to someone who's just like well-meaning so what are you gonna do you're gonna be like well yeah so i feel like in other ways tony like didn't write a song about like you know jewel and whatever but like you know cutting yeah, people I, out I, or whatever I, is this any, equivalent any any drug overdose can be considered suicide to one extent right because it's like yeah. well they weren't trying to or were they right like that's the whole thing is like well, we think, we think yeah that. just not caring enough anymore right, right. and so whatever happened whatever happened there. But again, I didn't know, like I didn't even know he owned some big giant piece of property. Like I just, again, I had heard vaguely about this thing, the downtown project. He disappeared because the whole thing disappeared for a while. Yeah. Right. But I just remember kind of when it was starting. And again, like you've got those two guys getting back to your show. Uh, by the way, this is how I do it, by the way. This is how my show goes. We just sort of talk about whatever we talk That's about. Good. Uh, it's very, very, very fly by the seat of my pants, which is kind of the only way I know how to do it. Those two guys, you're two, I don't know if you'd call them the protagonist, but the two guys that basically just thought he was just a bad guy. Like, oh. They were locals. The they killed, locals, yeah. killed the art scene and this is all bullshit. And you, you know what I mean? A like, lot of people felt like I, I had, you know, I said it was very hard to um, get people to go on the record. That was not a rare sentiment. That he was from locals. But don't from you locals. think he represented that? But him, like he personally, I don't think was some. Like I said, like let me try to screw over the artist. Like he just thinks it's cool to no, no to paint. What was the word it said? Like joy or freedom? Or what was the cool word that they painted? Wait, which cool word? Wasn't there like a wasn't there a, a giant mural that says art or inspire or something? Whatever, whatever. I right? think. No, but but I think it goes back to you. You might not have bad intentions, but you could still mess something up i think that was the sense because I, I don't think with them i i feel like very few people i spoke to thought tony was a quote-unquote bad person i think they just the people who didn't like what happened they just felt he surrounded himself with people who didn't know what they were doing he or he was doing in certain fields but thought he did and didn't get the right people to guide him so i think mismanagement and sloppiness and kind of some arrogance was more kind of right. well, it's, it's, people who spoke to me that was more of what it felt like rather well, it's than it's interesting because to the outside he's this sweet little guy and like yeah. people look at like Adam from WeWork as like the devil right but do if, they yeah maybe maybe yes, now they, they do. do did you okay. did you uh did you watch the WeWork documentary I did no but Adam I've always found quite interesting in a certain well, way so yeah, I'm anyway. guessing you were maybe more on the front lines of that because you, because of your interest in bit. Well, just before, let me just say really no, quickly. No, tell me. Yeah. People think he's evil because, like, oh, you and your wife are going to sc- solve the school problem, the education problem, right? It's like you saying people are going to solve money, right? Like yeah. that's pretty arrogant, and like you yes. clearly have drunk in your own Kool Aid that you think you and your wife are now going to do we school. Like, go fuck yourself, right? We but that, grow. Whatever the <laughs> hell it was, right? But but again, but Tony doesn't seem that way. Tony seems like this little like. I say little because he's short, but you know what I'm saying? Like people, I think. Was he short? You don't know how tall Tony Shea is? He's a little Asian man, woman who did a 10 episode special on Tony Shea. Yeah, but that, that, (laughs) his height wasn't, wasn't. You failed. His height wasn't relevant. I give you a D minus. It is though. As I'm saying, his stature, his being, the way he spoke. It's funny. Adam's almost the opposite. Like Adam's this big, tall, lanky, like, 
hey, we're going to change how we work and how we view the world. Um, yeah. Anyway, so did were you, I, I said front lines, have you been following that story work. before it all went bad? <laughs> yes, but we work. The interesting thing is I'm pretty sure I went to one of the first WeWork launches. It might have been the launch of the first space, in fact. So it was in 2011 in New York. And I remember going to one of the first spaces. And, you know, because the thing is, there is a lot of skepticism today where people are like, WeWork, it's just it's just a Regis. I totally disagree. Like, yeah, you can kind of laugh at like kombucha on tap and all this and the DJ. People, but people, it did but- feel... People listening don't even know what Regis is, by the way, but I do. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. It's like, what is what is Regis? Like boring corporate offices that you like hire Before by the Before the word day. co-working existed, I used them. When I had a staffing yeah. company, I was like, hey, I can't afford a hotel to rent the, the boardroom or I need more than what a hotel boardroom could do. I need like a space. And Regis was like, oh, come to our yeah. corporate offices. And they were very yeah. – very standard, like here's an office. It's just a white room. It's a just white a white room with but tables. But they also and started to do the whole like this can be a PO box, so you don't use mailboxes, etc. Yeah. Like yeah. this whole idea. And so yeah. yeah, WeWork is the hip Regis. Um, well, people w- people would say that, and I disagreed. Even that first launch. So it was um, somewhere in mid- Midtown in Manhattan, and it was like it was just one big floor of this building. And I remember there was nothing even there apart from some panes of glass. It was very kind of early. And it, I mean, it did feel like a community. It had a nice vibe. It felt like, and I used to drop in there um, over the kind of following year now and then. I'd drop in and it was like, oh yeah, you meet like-minded people who have similar goals. And like, I do think, you know, people do kind of like unfairly, I think, criticize the whole like WeWork community thing. And I'm like, that was actually a legit thing. Like, yeah, we grow and all of this was ridiculous, but there were aspects of it that were legit. Um, and I, I, this is another thing, because I think now we're in a time where we just kind of completely like lambast all that stuff. And I think it's really something in between. And I hope that that came across in cost of happiness, but, um, like, I don't think all those ideas were nonsense or kind of a scam. I could. So what I got out of it, if I'm thinking out loud, like, what did I get out of that? I mean, I was so curious about more behind the scenes. Again, I, I didn't know anything about downtown project, but it sounded honestly in many ways like any mismanaged big budget thing. You know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking at right that way is this thing called the Beltline in Atlanta. Have you heard of it? No. Okay. So some people call it the most expensive sidewalk in the world. Um, okay. But it really did. So are you understand? Do you, are you familiar with the concept uh, uh, rails to trails? No. no. <laughs> Very American. Okay. So once upon a time, uh, people traveled by train or uh, trolley car, right? Uh-huh. So most American cities have these train tracks that are unused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what happens is people like bikers or runners start like kind of finding them. Like I'm in the city, but I want to go for a run. There's this train track that goes for like five miles. You can just kind of run next to it. So people are starting to redevelop those. Okay, it's called rails to trails. Get it? That's cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So you can Google the Beltline in Atlanta uh-huh. and uh-huh. it's where so Pont City Market which is this big hipster expensive coffee expensive clothes that's where uh house house stuff works was okay the podcast the company the whole oh company. okay okay their offices cool. were there okay cool cool and so from that 3 mile stretch you build breweries you build 
uh, cool restaurants. And so young people now live there because they don't live downtown. I'm not sure, again, with America, there's always this idea of bringing downtown back because the white flight and everybody moved to the suburbs, right? So how do we get people to come back downtown? That's been an idea since I was a kid because they left Mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s and downtowns became horrible. How can we get people back downtown? Let's make a cool thing. And a lot of cities that didn't work for many reasons, like many reasons, right? So in Atlanta, Atlanta downtown, there still isn't much, but all these neighborhoods did take off. And so there's this thing called the Beltline, which the people who built it said would eventually go around the whole city. It's a 20 mile thing Mm -hmm. that goes around the whole city. And it's going to be amazing because it's going to connect poor neighborhoods and it's going to do this and it's going to do that. Well, of course, pretty soon the rich want to get richer and what do they do? And it becomes about gentrification and all the bad reasons that good projects go wrong. That to me is what more about Tony. It was more about that. Any cool, like let's, let's make downtown cool. Let's make cool art is becomes how can the rich get richer? That's unfortunately what it almost always devolves into many times. Yeah. But, but I also got the sense from people that locals felt that they were not as included as they believed they would be. Right. Just like the, just like the black folks here don't feel like they're being included. They're being priced out. Yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's a common story. That's what kind of what I feel like. It felt like that, but specifically around just because I also think, because it's just, it's just very unique. Like Vegas is its own unique sort of universe anyway. They, I really liked Vegas. I went a few times. I really liked her. So what did you like about I, it? I, I do hope to go back. First of all, I loved the climate. I was there in June and in August, and it was just hot and dry and perfect. Um, I've really, really liked the climate. I thought it was amazing. Um, it was amazing. Um, I'm Iranian, so I, I don't know if it's like my desert blood or something, but just, oh, the weather was amazing. Um, you know, that kind of just like like four degrees humidity and like 40 degrees Celsius, like heaven. I thought it was amazing. Loved the climate. Um, I thought it was a re- and actually a few journalists had told me this in advance in terms of like just it's kind of there's really interesting people there because, you know, you, you have like loads of creative people who either are working or at some point worked on the strip in some capacity. So you have lots of creative people um, I just found the people just quite interesting and quirky and like irreverent and stuff. I just thought it was great. I really liked it. So, uh, I definitely want to go back and do more reporting. Let yeah. me ask you a question. So you're Iranian. Yes. English accent. Yes. And a woman. Yes. Uh, how do most Americans treat you? Well, most Americans, that's a big question because it's like, like, I don't go to most of America, right? Like okay. um, I, I spend a lot of time in the US actually. So I spend a lot of time in New York which is like London. but yeah, New York is a pretty international city. But more multicultural even. Um, or sometimes I might be in California for, for work reasons and stuff. Also, I'm in multicultural places there. I'm not like in, I don't know. Do you feel, do you, I guess the question would be, is, is there, are there places you did feel discriminated against and which part of you were they discriminating against? Places I feel discriminated against. Well, in the US or yeah. generally? In the US, no, but that's more based on the places I've been. I know that's not the answer you want to hear, but like I've never been How to like kind of the South. Want... How do you know what kind of answer? Oh, sorry. No, no, that's not what I meant. Sorry, sorry. That was that was an assumption. I shouldn't have said that. You're right. Um, that that might be a boring answer, but that's based on like, you know, I've never been to like the deep south, you know. Right. I'm in the deep south also, right now. You should come visit. But but Atlanta's like a that's like a kind of special bit of the south, no? 
it, it is now. Feeling. When I grew up, yeah. it was very white people in the suburbs yeah. and black people in yeah. the city. And now yeah. we're much more of a melting pot. But you yeah. trust me, it's not. You don't have to go too far to find a racist, though. You don't have to go that far. No, I'm sure. But but also with me specifically, I'm not always placeable as well in terms of like, what is she? So that kind of, but you know, some people it's obvious like they're this ethnicity. So that, that I think maybe. Nas, let's have you on a game show. What is she? (laughs) What is she? (laughs) What is she? Well, I just know that specifically, you know, for a while, you know, you know, I know it was a long time ago, but you know, after 9-11, that was definitely like a a thing, right? It was Mm -hmm. definitely this shift towards Middle Eastern folks. Yes, that is true. There was a little bit of that in London as well, which is also a very international city. There was some of that, yeah. But then it's quite hard to answer that question because also the other thing is, um, so there's kind of like, where does someone like me go? There's also kind of like, what sorts of people does someone like me interact with? Um, So I, I would say I experience racism or sexism in much more subtle ways do I want to say this? I'd say like a certain type of upper class European person. That is where I will experience racism or and sexism. Like when you're like anything you attend with the royal family, they're not big fans of you. <laughs> anything with the royal family. No, it, it comes across in very subtle ways. It comes across in terms of being called aggressive. Uh, it comes across in terms of like a lot of ways. There, there's a lot of aggressive. microaggressions. Yeah. Like being called aggressive, being considered angry, um, being considered loud, uh, being considered trouble. That is something I will experience amongst, I would say, a certain type of European person. Because you a lot. Because you want to get an answer as a journalist and you're not taking you're no, not going just, away very quickly. No, I think that's that's how like racism and sexism manifest in less subtle ways because also i mean like you know by virtue of who who i am and what i do i might not end up in some of the situations that others end up in right like you know i i already mentioned what what types of places in america i tend to end up in um and it's like by virtue of like you know my education and my background and stuff i will end up in certain circles and so the way i will see racism is more by all right being told i'm Uh, being aggressive and i need to calm down i have an assignment for you Yes. Okay. Do you know who Ira Glass is? Yes. Okay. You need to call Ira and say, listen, I want to experience more of your country. Can I, can I, is there a story I can go report on you in Oklahoma or in Georgia? Yeah. No, I'm sure what you're saying, I'm sure there will be a lot more over racism there. No, but no, I, just, no, I just want you to experience it. I just think oh, you want to experience. We have a great country. It's a huge country. Yeah, I agree. Like everybody should travel and see most of it. It's very, yeah, yeah. you know, you guys yeah. can you guys can be in like you guys can go from you know from France to Spain to Germany to whatever. It's like here you can just like different states are very different. Yeah, I mean, different. Yeah, parts no, I agree. Of the states, so that's all. Not just to exp- not because I want you. <laughs> not just you're like go, go and experience racism. <laughs> <laughs> the Nas racism tour. Go and experience racism. Um, no, but this is something I find very interesting about Europe because I think in Europe people like to be like, oh, we're not like Americans. We don't shoot people, um, which is true. But I think there's a lot of like really subtle and it comes out in the ways I'm talking about. And it can be very nasty. There's a lot of very subtle sort of like, yeah. All right. Well, listen, this was a great chat. It went all over the place. Really? Really nice chatting to you, yeah. And listen to the episode with Dan Lyons because I think I, you'll like that. Uh, no, of course I will. I'm just I'm I'm mad because I listened to the the show and I was like I want to make sure I've heard all of them before we talk. And again, I do forget things, and so 
uh, if it's not the last thing I listen to, I can always remember. Uh, that's another thing about getting older. You just have only so much room in your brain. And I have three kids, and I don't know if you know this, but children eat your memory. I don't know how anyone with, you know, like people with kids and they work. And I'm like, how does anyone with a child just get around to that? I think it's very impressive. So, yeah. Um, Dan just put out a book, I think, this week. I can't remember what it's called, but he has a new book out if you're a Dan Lyons fan. Well, I love that book. So they're should, disrupted. Yeah. Maybe you should get him on the show because he might be doing a, a press uh, round. Do you think you can make that happen? I don't know. Him I can. I'll, I will ask him. Yeah. No, for real. That'd be huge. Cause I'm no, no, I will. I will. It's the I last will. book I read cover to cover that I was like, yeah. this is no, amazing. I'll ask him. Um, uh, oh, so tell people what you have to, to promote, I guess. Is there a show or a, or a project, a project you'd like to talk a about? Project, a project I'd like to talk about. Um, I am currently working on some things, but I have a Concord mug in, in my hand because at the same time the Cost of Happiness was coming out, I had a podcast. Um, I reported on Concord. Um, so I, I was presenting it more. The, the producer, Pedro Mendes, he reported it a lot. So that is called Teamistry, which is like uh, team and I-S-T-R-Y. And it's a podcast that's all about teams. Actually, you might find it interesting because it's all about teams and teamworks and teamwork and how companies like do stuff um, and we did a full season on concord because it's a very interesting story because um i don't know how much people listening know but you know it was a supersonic uh, plane and uh, um the team was based in the uk and in france and this is like you know in the pre-internet age and you know they were working in different languages um you know different measurement systems different locations but they made this incredible amazing thing so the podcast explored that and it was really fun. Um, just it, I got to speak to all these like designers and engineers and people who are just really excited by flight and by engineering. And because a lot of my work is like quite kind of heavy people dynamics and people like, you know, ending up really upset and like stuff like that. So it was like it was very pure as well. It was like, wow, no one screwed anyone over. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like just all these people very excited by this take, engineering. But you can't take challenge. a Concord anymore. You can't know. And if you listen to the podcast, you'll hear why. Um, if you listen to it. But um, Tea Mystery, uh, um, The Untold Story of Concord, check it out. Um, I'm holding this mug because I bought it whilst we were reporting and I think it's a very beautiful plane. Um, that was really fun and that was really nice to, to. And also listen to The Cost of Happiness. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, and it's so lovely to speak to you. Let's chat again soon and I'll send Dan your way. I'll tell him that I've told everyone on this podcast that he's going to speak to you. So now he's up. <laughs> so there you have it. That was Nas. Please do go and listen to that podcast. If you haven't already, the cost of happiness, Tony Shea, easy to find on Apple podcasts or whatever you find them. And since this interview, I did go back and listen to that bonus episode with Dan Lyons and she did connect me with him. And as I said, I believe to her, uh, this was the last book that I think I read the last book that I read cover to cover in like a week because I couldn't put it down uh, disrupted and he and I have exchanged emails so I'll be bringing that one to you as well so Nas thank you so so much for that and and as I've said before I know many of you have heard throughout your years of listening that it's great to leave a review and I do appreciate a good review but also I believe the best thing you can do if you enjoy the show is to tell a friend because that's how podcasts get spread is word of mouth so tell a friend that you're enjoying this podcast love you miss you mean it i have got to run